from the inkwells of Noir. To the digital screens of today. The kids present the comic book character of the month. Welcome back, kids, and thanks for listening as we conclude our coverage of Tyndall, our comic book character of the month for March and Weird World. Now, as we enter into phase three of Weird World, we will be delving into the epic collaboration between writer Doug Mensch and illustrator Big John Busema. And we are going back to our first-hand account of this epic, as told by Doug Mensch in his article, Washed Ashore on Weird World, which came out in Marvel Premiere, Volume 1, Issue Number 11. Doug, if you'll recall, recounted the Marvel Premiere which brought us Weird World. Also, he gave us the first-hand account of the first ever published story about Weird World and Tyndall, which would happen in, of all publications, one that also featured Punisher, and that was Marvel Super Action. Now, we turn our attention to the Marvel Super Special era. Enter! new special projects editor, Rick Marshall, and assistant, Ralph Macchio. Rick is looking for material suitable to a proposed fantasy project. Ralph, a former fan, suggests Weird World as the perfect vehicle. Tolkien is also mentioned. Ralph and I push Weird World harder. Tolkien is discussed seriously. Rick comes over to the Weird World camp. Tolkien is ultimately abandoned. Weird World wins. Best of all, the project is to become and be done on slick paper, in full process color, at magazine length, and so on, through a long and glittering list of publishing wonders. I am at least ecstatic with the promise of being washed up on the gorgeous full color, full length shores of my beloved Weird World. Like a man who has dreamed all his life of exploring Africa and who is now handed a free ticket straight to the heart of the Dark Continent, I am ready to embark on the journey with a hyped-up vengeance. I revel in the construction of the plot, always surprising myself through four long, hard days of clean, strong, inspired accomplishment. The huge, huge plot is finished. It reads like a novella. I like it. Rick likes it. Ralph likes it. John Buscema likes it. Suddenly, everyone in the world seems to love Weird World. It is as if the past six and a half nightmarish years of pushing, pleading, begging, and cajoling had never happened, or at least had all been unnecessary. And this time, it has been less than two years of birth pangs, a mere matter of feverish, painstaking months, in fact. Weird World done the way it should have been done all along. The way all comics should be done will soon be here. Indeed, it is here. 
Weird World, a place teeming with images and sensations. Elves and dwarves and goblins and sorcerers and nightfangers and dragons and elemental wraiths and swamp serpents and weremen and ogres and sprites and weirdling steeds and all the rest. Floating islands and crystal caverns and gnome clusters and dawning shrines and rainbow dells and fire moss moors and monster isles and misty seas and dark lensed gems and white wolves. Innocence and happiness unbound. Rib-tickling joyousness. The most golden afternoon of eternal enchantment in all the golden days of the most exuberant and exhilarating reality ever dreamed or devised. But also evil and tragedy unbound. Spine-chilling horror. The worst and darkest night of all the shriekingly scary moon-haunted nights and swarming wickedly through the murkiest nightmares ever conceived. Weird World is contrast, you see, a place of wild and unlimited extremes, a place much like my childhood and perhaps like yours. Fun was always more than fun. It was timeless ecstasy. Fear was always more than fear. It was the pinnacle of never-ending terror. In the world of childhood and in the world of Tyndall and Valana of Clarn, every experience, good or bad, is magnified until infinity and felt down to the roots of goose flesh. Imagination, soaring unfettered to the upper reaches of the inner mind, is the only boundary, and it is an invisible one, which always yields to each higher thrust. Unfortunately for me, childhood is gone and lost forever. Weird World will, all, will just have to suffice. When asked to write this article, or freeform essay, actually, I stress the fact that I wanted to be as honest as possible I could. Therefore, facing the inevitable honesty, I'm clearly aware that comparisons between Weird World and Tolkien have been and will be drawn. This is unfortunate. I think because, quite honestly, I have never read Lord of the Rings. Yes, I own a set of the trilogy, and yes, I have always intended to read it, until Weird World came along anyway, and yes, I did read The Hobbit, when it was first published in this country. I was a high school freshman or sophomore at the time and now remember very little about the book. Beyond Gollum's riddles and yes, I have seriously absorbed the essence of Tolkien simply via media osmosis. But any direct plot similarities between Weird World and Lord of the Rings are certainly not conscious. Beyond the overall subject matter, of course, and are probably attributable to the fact that both Tolkien and I have drawn from the same primary source of Anglo folklore. Being half Scottish, I feel an affinity with such fairy tales, but I am certainly not the scholar Tolkien was. So, while you will indeed find consistency and detail in the realm of Weird World, it will be mostly of my own making shaped around a foundation of British folklore common with Lord of the Rings, but most embellished beyond recognition. My own imagination is and will be the greatest source of inspiration in creating Weird World. But if a precursor influence for the mood and tenor of Weird World must be cited, it will not be Tolkien, but Disney, an imaginary unmade Disney film recalled from childhood but existing in my mind. Further, pursuing this line of honesty and with no false modesty, I'd like to set another fact opinion on record. I'm extremely proud of this current Weird World project. 
The story is by far the best plot I have done for comics on every level. John Buscema's work rarely this inspired and brilliantly inked by Rudy Nebrez is the best art I've ever seen in comics anywhere at any time. Peter Ledger's painting and airbrush coloring still stuns me. It too, in all honesty, is the best I've ever seen in comics. Rick Marshall's knowledge of printing techniques and processes, the possibilities for art, color, packaging, and his overall enthusiasm for real world has been invaluable to the project. Ralph Macchio's persistence, support, and encouragement has similarly enhanced Weird World. And everyone else in the bullpen who has been involved from Len Grow to Stan Lee has performed yeoman's services in striving to ensure that every facet of Weird World is handled with the utmost care and quality. Quite honestly, quite frankly, I think Weird World is the best damn comic book ever produced. Honestly, however, cannot be selective. True honesty embraces all Phrases, every aspect of the matter at hand. So yes, there have been problems. There have been great difficulties, hassles, flaring tempers, great frustrations, clashing egos, and more than several shouting matches. Weird World is a project, and as an imaginary reality, fairly seized with hot life. I don't see how it could have been any other way. The most unfortunate aspect of the project, in my opinion, is both good and bad. I suppose, and not everyone shares my opinion, Dark Lens and the Shadow Realm, my original plot for it anyway, was written for 63 continuous pages, all to be contained in one book, read in one sitting. For various diverse and mostly boring reasons, the story had to be split into three parts and presented in three separate magazines. This is good on one hand. It has allowed us to expand the story to well over 100 pages, permitting the art to breathe deeply in panoramic splendor, granting each story element and incident greater space, weight, and detail, and has generally conformed to the needs of the story, introducing epic length to an epic tale. On the other hand, I am personally a bit uncomfortable with a three-way split. The story was not designed for segments or installments or cliffhangers, and I'm afraid each of the three parts will be unfairly judged as units rather than components. We have done our best, of course, to make divisions as painless as possible, and a monthly frequency of the three issues should make weight between installments at least bearable. I only hope you will trust me, trust all of us involved, when I say that your patience between issues will be well worthwhile. This issue barely begins the tale, and by far, the very best is yet to come. And please, when the second and third parts appear in the next two months, go back and reread the preceding pages. Finally, it is hoped that someday, perhaps soon, the situation will be ameliorated by presenting the entire story in one huge omnibus volume, possibly including the first two stories, An Ugly Mirror on Weird World and Tyndall's Quest. When my phone rang six and a half years ago in Chicago, Weird World was no more than a subconscious dream. A month later, when I presented the first story to Marvel Comics, Weird World had become the seeding for something that might or might not flourish into a mighty sprawling tree. The time, however, was seemingly not quite right, just as the time was perhaps not quite right for Conan when I, and probably others, first suggested the character so Marvel more than two years before the first Thomas Smith issue finally hit the stands with a legendary bang, 
Conan eventually became a comics institution. The time became right, and now the time is right. I sincerely hope for Weird World. Now, the seeding has sprouted. The dream has come to life. I think it is a glorious life, but it is up to the reader, ultimately, to be the real judge. Will you ever visit any of those other misty shores shown on the map? I've written and designed, and which Peter Ledger has also beautifully realized in full color. Will you ever climb those wind-whipped mountains called the Twin Demon Peaks? I hope so. And yes, I believe so. It is a childlike belief, perhaps fragile and unfounded, but sometimes such beliefs prove to be the strongest and most enduring of all. So writes Doug Mensch in this brilliant introduction to this series. So let's delve into Warriors of the Shadow Realm. In Warriors of the Shadow Realm, the first part, Tyndall, Valana, and their new companion Mudbutt are crossing the great marsh of Weird World. Mudbutt regales them with the promises of the wonders of depravity they can find in the city of Seven Dark Delights. When they're shocked by the sudden appearance of a savage elf fleeing a group of nightfangers. The savage elf runs in too fast into Tyndall's group to catch up and find out more about him, but a subsequent appearance of a glowing white wolf somehow fills Tyndall and Valana with a feeling of calm, as if it was there to assure them that everything would be fine. The next day, Mudbutt takes Tyndall and Valana the rest of the way to the city of Seven Dark Delights. Excited to spend days sampling all seven, the elves, innocent as they are, are more apprehensive, but for the same time being, have nowhere else to go but follow Mudbutt's lead. As they sit down for a meal at a bistro, they notice a mysterious cloaked figure sitting nearby. Meanwhile, five fearsome Dark Riders arrive in the city on a hunt. This part one really is a feast for the eyes, illustratively. I could be here for hours just praising John Buscema and his art team. But instead, I would encourage you all to read this series. It is groundbreaking. It is grossly underappreciated and a truly an epic. I will say that the visuals in here, particularly the five fearsome dark riders, made me think of the Ringwraiths from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. Now, mind you, Doug Mensch was very explicit in saying that, hey, he had not read Lord of the Rings. He had read The Hobbit. But I can't help but think that folks in the art department, as they were bringing the illustrative storytelling to life, definitely leveraged Tolkien as it related to popular culture. There's just no mistaking it. So then we move on to our part two. And in part two, the news of the arrival of the Dark Riders, the cloaked figure sitting near Tyndall's group at this bistro, springs into a fight of terror. And it's revealed as the same savage elf they saw earlier in the swamp. Tyndall takes off after him, wanting to help another from Klarn, his kin, but finds his crossbow bolts pass right through the Dark Riders. 
The fleeing elf is soon caught and killed. He drops a satchel and uttering only the name Zarthon as he falls. When Tyndall picks up the bag, the Dark Riders turn their sights on him, and he realizes that it was the bag that they were after. As Tyndall's group runs, they spot the White Wolf, leading them into an inn where a white-bearded innkeeper assures them they will be safe if they spend the night. Trusting the wolf's guidance, they take the innkeeper up on his offer. Tyndall begins to examine the bag's contents, revealing five prismatic gems. Mudbutt immediately wants to sell them, but Tyndall insists on keeping them until they can find the meaning of Zarthon. The gems are left out as they go to sleep, and when the moonlight hits them, silver elemental wraiths emerge from the gems and attempt to attack the party. They're saved by the intervention of the White Wolf, which fights back and drives the wraiths back into the gems. The next morning, Tyndall asks the innkeeper about Zarthon and learns that it refers to a wizard living near over a nearby lake. Despite Mudbutt's protests, the group heads to meet Zarthon who quickly identifies the Dark Lens gems and their hidden property. That, when arranged in a particular manner and exposed to sunlight, they provide a vision of their inner truth, the evil sorcerer, Dark Lens, creator of Weird World. Wow, we just ratcheted up another notch here in the epic nature in part two. Again, the illustrations are paintings. They're gorgeous. All of this is depicted visually and is amazing to take in. From Zarthon to the prismatic gems to these wraiths. Just gorgeous. Absolutely phenomenal. So then, in our culminating part three, the Soul Shrine, Zarthon explains to Tyndall and company that the history of Dark Lens and Weird World. Dark Lens was once a rebel dark god that lost his war and was condemned to a mortal life on the world that he had inadvertently spawned from the clash of magical forces in battle. Dark Lens eventually engaged a plot to blot out the light on Weird World and corrupt it by levitating large pieces of its crust high into the sky, starting with the elves homeland of Klarn. Before he could advance to the next step, a comet thought to be sent by the gods of light fell through the center of Klarn and crushed the dark lens on the surface below, resulting in the region of shadow's ring shape. The dark riders, dark lens followers, embarked on a plan to eventually resurrect their master, starting by transferring his essence to the Dark Lens gems before entombing his remains deep in a shrine of limbo. Before they could complete their efforts, the gems were stolen from the tomb. In the process, Tyndall also learned that the situation in which Velana was found in the center of the region of shadow corresponds to a prophecy 
of a savior that will one day restore the image of Klarn in a world where their kind has been ostracized due to its connection to the evils that spawn from their land's shadow. With gems now assembled into a miniature of the tomb that produces a key for it, Zarthon gives Tyndall's group the mission of going to the tomb and burning Dark Lens's bones once and for all. They are magically transported to the tomb. Tyndall, Valana, and Mudbutt are quickly surrounded by these Klarn folk who are mohawked, and they got the gems from. The savage elves initially believe them to be Dark Lens agents, but the appearance of the white wolf diffuses the situation, this common white wolf figure. The five reveal that they are the last survivors of a tribe absent from Klarn when it was elevated, and they have been working against the Dark Riders ever since. They stole the gems and sent their messenger with them to find Zarthon. They also explain that the White Wolf is actually a spirit of the Comet and the embodiment of all dead Klarn folk. They decide to trust Tyndall's group with the mission to destroy Dark Lens. They all penetrate the tomb and follow the clues to open Dark Lens's sarcophagus and they begin incinerating his bones with the gems. But just then, Zarthon appears and merges with the corpse, apologizing for submitting to the dark allure of their power. As Zarthon grows to titanic proportions, he gradually transforms in Dark Lens Reborn. Ironically, his followers, the Dark Riders, only recognize him as a usurper of the Master's power and attack shedding their humanoid guises to reveal that they were the same Nightfangers that were also hunting for the gems. The Nightfangers' attack causes the tomb to collapse into a colossal gateway made up of large-scale Darklands gems, through which they can see a magical realm where Zarthon Darklands continues to battle the Nightfangers. The balance is upset, when the White Wolf appears, revealing himself to also be the innkeeper from the City of Seven Dark Delights, and dives through the gate to conquer the Nightfangers and then sacrifice himself in a clash with Dark Lens that appears to annihilate them both and the sorcery realm around them. In the dawn of the new day, the Savage Elves dedicate the grounds of the former tomb of Limbo as the shrine of the dawning miracle, and so ends our epic tale. The consistency of the art from part one to two to three is phenomenal. This was one work, just broken up into three parts for the sake of a publication cycle. This is one coherent epic. It is gorgeous. The experience is magnificent. It has many common fantasy themes that one would find in Tolkien and epic high fantasy fiction. Excellently done by Doug Bench. Brilliantly led art team by John Buscema and one to be experienced by every single fantasy fan out there that appreciates great fantasy art and an epic tale. I cannot recommend this series, this tale, more than I am right now. It is just a brilliant work. 
the last tale within our read came from Epic Illustrated, which was an adult-oriented magazine form that Marvel had developed for the publication of fantasy and science fiction. It was Marvel's attempt to compete with Heavy Metal Magazine, as well as several others that had come out in the 70s and into the 80s with a more mature audience in mind. And that story is The Dragon Master of Klarn. And this was a multi-part series. This appeared in Epic Illustrated, Volume 1, Issue Number 9, and then finished up in Issues 11 through 13. So it was a four-parter. First coming out in December of 1981. That story dealt with the continuing saga of our main character here, Tyndall. And somewhere in the heavens, the gods play a game. But Dark Lens's brother ventures to Weird World to turn the tide in the darkness's favor by stealing the power of the light and using it to imbue his servant, Merkindor. The Lord Magester then tasks Merkindor with retrieving the sleep crystal as he turns his attention to corrupting Valana. And that's how we get started. And we are taken on another fantastic epic. And the same illustration team with Big John Buscema, the writer being Doug Mensch, and a fantastic multi-parter that would come out in Epic Illustrated. And this was all included in our Weird World Warriors of the Shadow Realm graphic novel that we read for the month of March in support of Tyndall, our character of the month for Appendix End Month. I hope that you have enjoyed our chronicling of the journey of Weird World, this most underappreciated work of our comic book character of the month, Tyndall, and how the differences, but no doubt pop cultural influences of The Lord of the Rings came to bear in the series. And next up, we will be having our review of The Hobbit, the illustrative graphic novel version of that fine story that Ray and I will review next week here on Kirby's Kids. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.